It's so big. It looks like Godzilla, but due to international copyright laws, it's not. Still, we should run like it is Godzilla! Though it isn't. Welcome to Two Old Farts Talk Sci-Fi. I'm David Klink. And I am Troy Harkin. And man, David, I'm so excited to be up here at your gorgeous, gorgeous cottage once again, sitting by the lake and chilling. Yeah, what was the, what was the, um, I, I think we hung around last year doing doing another show, if you remember that. That's right. That was the uh, the shrinking. Shrinkage extravaganza. Sorry, I'm a little parched. I need a little little brewski mm. to, to get let the words flow out. Um, yeah, that was our our shrinkage show, which was everything sort of micro. Well, we're on to the macro now. I love um, macaroni. Macaroni, the San Francisco treat, or yeah. is that something else? I can't remember what. It's that like was. The, that's the, rice the, the the macaroni would be like uh, you just get one piece of elbow macaroni, but like it's like a big tube, and you you enter into it and you eat it from the inside, just like a parasite macaroni. Wow, but anyways, <laughs> <laughs> so um, like horror much, but okay, so. Um, <laughs> Yeah, just imagine being eaten alive from the inside. But I think Stephen King's already dreamed that, or that's partly his life almost. It's like yeah. um, we're going to work in some horror at some point during this episode. I think almost almost anything to do with size is already a bit scary because we're generally, you know, the bully, the, the, the idea that you're a kid, you're going to school, and it's always a bit, usually a bigger kid that's the one that that bullies you. And I apologize on behalf of all bigger people for those who were uh, traumatized by someone who's taking advantage of their size. Well, it's actually, it just traumatizes me just being on the the podcast with you, but I'm just kidding for for other reasons. But I'm just kidding, of course. We're just joking around here at the the cottage. And that's like a loon there. Yeah, that's right. We're joshing a bit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Um, yeah. But size so, matters. That's what we're well, talking it about. It does. And and one of my puns during one of the Game of Thrones panels I was on at conventions over the years was about the Borse. I think their the last name was Borse. It's been a few years. So, um, but they were the ones that would actually um, torture people. They were the big on the torturing. Yeah. And I and I I made the pun where I said, "Well, they become too big to flail." Killing me softly with his jokes, which got a groan from people in the audience. But are this they, is our. Go ahead. I was gonna, are they called the Borsch? No, 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 no. It's it's um. But now now I'm forced to sort of Google this. I do have my laptop out just in case. Because now I'm thinking um, like sausage and whatnot, and like Hungarian food. Paprika. Jupiters, looks like we're going to have some excitement after all. I'd better notify the rest of the super friends. Well, one of the great things 
David, about being up here at Lake Dalek is that you you have really great Wi-Fi service. So uh, luckily, we will be able to Google things that we need. Uh, and I guess just before we jump into our whole breakdown of sort of the history of bigness in genre, especially the monsters. It's so um, big. I just realized uh, PJ Harvey has a great song called something like um, Here Comes the Monster or something like that. I'll have to look that one up. We're going to end up cutting out the whole show. We won't have anything to actually, we'll end up with a 30 second uh, episode. Anyway, um, I have a couple of quick little questions that kind of pertain to to cottage life, David. Yeah, there and, it is. I'm sorry. It's Bolton, B-O-L-T-O-N. Instead of oh, Borson, it's Bolton. Like Michael it's Bolton, the Michael Bolton people. Uh, yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah, Michael Bolton may, be, may, may have been one of the Boltons, but maybe not. So Ramsey Bolton uh, and the other Bolton clan, there was definitely something a bit odd and something a bit sick with them. Uh, mm. And it was... And Theon did not do well um, uh, with them. So it, certainly Game of Thrones was one of those series that was got a bit vicious. But yes, again, the Boltons, too big to flail. Um, let me go to my notes here. So yeah, we're recording this Size Matters episode on a Tuesday, June 1st. It's scheduled for broadcast on Saturday, June 11th. And I think we're going to have a second episode on June 25th. We do not have a special guest for this episode, before we get into the episode, Troy will give us a spoiler alert. Okay, I have to. Uh, I brought my little spoiler alert with me. Here, I'm going to push the button. Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Thanks, Troy. Wow, that's a little. It's intense. Maybe I need. I need to to have a mellower spoiler alert for days like this. So, well, the people, I, the people across the lake. We're sort of sort of got up out of their chairs there, yeah. Troy. And that's the nudist colony too. So I, maybe I should hit the spoiler alert again. <laughs> yeah. um, oh my goodness! So we're recording this uh, session via Zoom, and I will just cut through this because this is our normal stuff. And I print it off on a piece of paper. Um, Two old first talk sci-fi is a look back to when we fell in love with the speculative genre to recall these times with fondness and affection. I think there's a quote from the movie Pacific Rim that may have said it best. There are things you can't fight, acts of God. You see a hurricane coming, you get out of the way. But when you're in a Jaeger, suddenly you can fight the hurricane. You can win. On to size Matters. Now, Troy, you're not going to give your usual background for this episode or set it in context nah. or do all that stuff because, you know, this whole episode where we're hanging out here, you know, uh, at it's the cottage. on the dock. Just, the whole thing is going to be background. We're going to look at, I think you, you thought that maybe it's best to just start where it began early on with things like King Kong and Mighty Joe Young and just talk about those films and the ones that came since. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I, uh, I did have a couple of questions I wanted to ask you, Dave, just oh, sure. before we, we jumped in. These sort of pertain to 
cottage life. And it also gives us a sense, a greater sense of the enigma that is David Klink. Um, so let me ask you, David. I'm going to give you a couple of options, and you, you choose one. And you can say, if you want to speak to it, go ahead, whatever. But how about this, Colt 45 or 50? Probably the 45. Uh-huh. Strong beer should truly be strong. Colt 45, the strong beer for real men. Now how about ketchup chips or barbecue chips? Oh, barbecue chips. Okay. Uh, so it's a rainy day at the cottage or it's night. Is it Crokinole or Monopoly? Wow. That t- brings back memories. Um, it would probably be Monopoly because it's very hard to find a Crokinole board around. I haven't played a cro- Crokinole since around 1977 mm-hmm. or 76, maybe. All right. It's been a while. Um, I have to say, like, A, I do love Crokinole, but, and I do hate Monopoly in general. And I think that's sort of my, my socialist upbringing. So whenever I start to play Monopoly, after about 15 minutes, I just give whatever property or money I have to the person with the least amount of capital. And with, with Crokinole, you end up flicking your your finger on yeah. these little discs. Yeah. Now, when, I wouldn't, if you play it a lot, say say you were having a marathon session sure, yeah. of Crokinole while watching maybe a Hudson and Rex marathon on the TV, uh-huh. hanging out with your buds and stuff, and yeah. you're flicking this thing. You keep doing that for a couple of hours, your finger starts to hurt. Yeah, well, the what I find is the best way to do it, don't hit it like your finger's like a bat hitting a ball, but just mm-hmm. rest your finger behind the piece and then you give it a like a little push mm. that's that's the best bet that's how well, that's that's my method anyway um and i less, wasn't expecting tips on crokinole in this oh that's thing see i've now i haven't played it in over a year but that's certainly more recently than what you just said i think the 70s or something so okay so uh smarties or m&ms both Oh, and now I guess we should explain for our non-Canadian listeners that uh, in Canada, and I think in Britain as well, Smarties are kind of like M&Ms, whereas I know in, in the States, Smarties are the name given to the candy we call rockets. Um, so that we're talking about Smarties that look like M&Ms. Mm. Um, okay. Uh, okay. Mal- I, 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 and that was cheating a bit. I, mean, I do like both, but I will have to pick uh, M and M's over Smarties. Okay. See, and I think back to my childhood where you could use the Smarties box as a musical instrument. Um, so, at least for that, I would lean towards Smarties. When you eat your Smarties, do you eat your red ones last? Do you suck them very slowly or crunch them very fast? Eat that candy coated chocolate, but tell me when I ask. Maltesers or Whoppers? I would probably go with Maltesers. Okay. I find that really a tough one. Mm. I I cannot choose. Uh, Hamburgers or hot dogs? Wow. These are tough questions. These are tough cottage questions. Yeah. And I would love to answer both because the hot dogs, it can't be those slim little. Right. They have to be the jumbo. They have to be the jumbo one. Like a ballpark hot dog. 
Exactly. And you got some bacon on it. You got some of that oh. cheddar melted on it. You got the bun all toasted up. And that thing, it's hard to beat a proper jumbo uh, prepared properly. Yeah. Then it, it almost beats out a hamburger. It's yeah. almost not fair. Well, you know, and that's the thing. The hot dog is uh, ergonomic, right? Mm. It's 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 shaped. You could almost call my. I have a friend who used to always call the mouth the pie hole. But really, if you think about it, the mouth is much more hot dog shaped. So it it works really well. It fits in the hand very well. Even if you have like a foot long dog. It's so big. You know, you what, can like. What, excuse me. You what can, are we talking well, about? Size size matters, right? Is this code? Yeah, yeah. No, it was cottage code. It's like pre Hayes code. Talk. The CCA, the Cottage Code Authority. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Not approved by. Yes. Um, okay, uh, cream soda or root beer? Oh, wow. Fantastic. The thing is, it's easier to find root beer, and root beer makes a better float, but I, I, I wouldn't say that I wouldn't try it. The cream one might be also good, but cream soda. I've got this issue with, with sugar and I basically do diet drinks. It's much easier to find a diet root beer than it is to find a diet mm. cream soda. Yeah. Um, now with cream soda, I would almost pick it over root beer because I have so much more access and can drink more root beer. The cream soda feels like that special moment or occasion yes. where you only have it like once a year or twice a year at most, maybe even once every couple of years. And it becomes that special thing. So I may have to pick cream. I mean, I pick root beer as the thing that I go, as my go-to that yep. and diet Dr. Pepper. Um, but, yeah, the right cream soda. I, and, and I was just at the store looking, and, I, and all they had was regular cream soda. I, there were no diet in my local uh, food mart. Well, I totally agree with everything you just said there. Um, and f- for me, cream soda, I mean, I would rather have a root beer every day of my life than a cream soda. But when I have a cream soda, it immediately brings me back to the summers of my youth. Um, you, you just taste that, and you feel like you're 10 again. Okay. Well, even so that, a cream soda, like like with a root beer float, it's right. very hard to beat a root beer float because you just have all this ice cream. You add some root beer, you, you drink the damn thing or eat or whatever the hell you do with yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> it's just fantastic. But I have a feeling that a cream soda may not make that bad with, with vanilla ice cream or whatever the ice cream you use. may actually taste pretty good too. Um, okay. So I have a couple of, of, of sort of more negative things. What's worse? Sunburn or poison ivy? I don't think I've had poison ivy. Um, I've had some bad sunburn in my day, including going to northern Ontario. Uh, I was a, a dating woman. This is way, you know, years before I met Alexa. And she had family in Erst, H E A R S T, but it's pronounced Erst, which is a 10 and a half mile, 120 kilometer per hour drive directly north. And I was out there without a shirt and I got a serious burn, like the kind of burn where you almost couldn't lie down. So sunburn for me, I've had a number of burns over the years from sunburn. I, I, I'm a bit smarter now. You got to get covered right. up. You yeah. got to just watch what you're doing. Yeah. You have the first couple of burns and then you don't go there again. You learn. Um, yeah. Uh, what's worse, sand down your bathing suit or an hour stuck in traffic with arguing relatives. 
probably the relatives. Like yeah. The sand can be really something that you, you basically have to go back into the water and just try to get rid of that sand in some way, or just, or to get into the shower, whatever you do, you got to address that because that's really a, a problem. Yep, definitely. And I, I'm reminded sometimes by some of my relatives, we were at a beach once when I was very young, but probably older than I should have been. And, um, you know, we were playing in the water, playing in, on the beach and, um, and I got some sand down, down the bathing suit. And I just decided this is ridiculous. I have to take this off. And I then had my three female uh, cousins chasing me around the beach, trying to get me to stop being nude on the beach. Um, so yeah, it's, and they, they quite often will remind me of that too. So there you go. Thank you. Sand down the bathing. They started calling you Sandy at that point, but that's right. Um, what's worse skunks or developers? Oh, I'm sorry. You're saying that they're different? No, just kidding. <laughs> um, skunks are fine. Now, the, the 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 issue is, of course, if the skunk releases its odor, which you can, you know, in Canada we talk kilometers. So you kilometer to away, you can actually still smell that skunk. I've never had a skunk directly spray me. I, I from what I understand, I don't know if it's an old wives' tale. You basically have to somehow find yourself in a bathtub and somehow find enough tomato like where do you go tomatoes, to enough yeah. tomatoes tomato to actually make or tomato juice yeah. to actually fill up a whole tub i mean has anyone thought just how much tomato juice you actually need to end up being soaked in tomato juice in a tub that's a lot unless that's I mean, a lot yeah especially if you're younger but uh but developers, yes, yeah, certainly the only constant, people say the only constant is change, but I also say death, taxes, and, con- and construction. Yep. Uh, if last one, what is worse? Dock spiders, which can be massive, or water snakes? For me, it's always been dock spiders. Um, because w- with the water snakes, I've only seen a few in my life, and generally they were like, always moving away. There were never something that got me to a point where I had to run screaming from the water. Um, whereas dock spiders, I've never really tried to harm or bother me, but that I've been much more closer and more concerned. I've had this sort of spider phobia for quite a while. And considering we're doing our size matters show, there's a number of examples of large spiders in, in science fiction movies that we will get to later in the episode. Pretty much, yeah, moving on now. Yeah, and I'm sure we're sitting right on top of some dock spiders right now. Um, but with water snakes freak me out. I mean, mm. just seeing that happen bothers me. <laughs> it's like it would it, flying would almost be as bad. And I do believe there are some flying snakes, aren't there? Like, am, am I imagining this? I think I've well, seen. I think you're getting them confused with flying squirrels, but you know, sometimes yeah. you can get flying squirrels and snakes mixed mm. up. Isn't that lovely? Mm. So I, I thought, you know, the place that we should probably really start the episode is with the film The Lost World. Not not the Jurassic Park sequel, The Lost World, but in 1925, there was a silent film directed by Harry O'Hoyt, 
we had a screenplay by Marion Fairfax, which is awesome that, you know, this was back in the day when there were female screenwriters. We've returned to that, but clearly for the long history of Hollywood films, there weren't a lot of women working uh, either as screenwriters or directors. But yeah, this was penned by Marion Fairfax and uh, based on a story by uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Um, and the effects were by Willis H. O'Brien, who would go on to do the stop motion animation for the original King Kong. Um, and so we sort of like set the scene for uh, the gigantic monster films to come. It's funny. I always, uh, with, with dinosaur films, I almost feel like, I mean, yeah, they, that's their natural state. They are just that big or were that big. Um, but for the most part, we'll be looking at things that um, are much bigger than they usually are. Monsters that have magnified their size. Um, anyway, yeah, if you get a chance to see The Lost World, David, it's, it's available online. Even if you just go to the Wikipedia, Wikipedia page, uh, you can find it. It's, there's a direct link to it. Um, and it's really cool to check out. And it, it does the thing. Of course, this is a silent film because this is 1925 and it's black and white because it's 1925. But they use that effect that some films did pre-color where they insert a color filter. So when they're in the jungle, everything, there's just a green hue over everything to sort of fill in, you know, the greenery um, of the foliage. And... Um, yeah, it's it's a good watch, and the stop stop motion stuff is really good. Um, again, that was Willis H. O'Brien, uh, who uh, then went on to do King Kong, and we have on multiple episodes talked about how much you and I both love Kong. Yeah, the thing with with Kong, and we've mentioned this before, and I'm sure the same effect would be with The Lost World was films of those time, because they're much better now, because obviously time has passed and you've got better technology. We also have better understanding of dinosaurs. And some of them were feathered and some and just how they actually looked and how they might actually act, how, how they may run and all of this scientific stuff and, and things like Jurassic Park and even more recent things do a great job. Some of this early stuff, you just have to take it with a bit of a grain of salt and understand the time it was made. Right. Because the dinosaurs in them are not great, but that was the time. Like they just couldn't make, if they had the effects now and that was shot and that was shown in 33 or 25, that would totally blow everyone away. But even then audiences at that time would have been impressed at, what they could do, just like 1939's oh, Wonderful Wizard of Oz. All of these films set a new benchmark. The Lost World did that in 25, but King Kong may have been the best early, beyond Metropolis, as something that was so groundbreaking right, and so amazing. And we've imagined being in the audience. Like If you're time traveling, you're talking about all these things you might want to have done, but I would be great on the opening night to have a seat in the theater and watch the very first screening of King Kong and seeing the people's reaction. Yeah. You know, I actually feel a little bit uh, like that now with 2001. When, it, when you realize all of this is 
real practical effects. Everything that you were watching in that film, which is stunning and still holds up for its pristine video, not videography, cinematography. Um, it's, it was all, uh, done. Like somebody had to actually shoot that. There's no CGI, you know, none of it is sort of like created in a computer. Everything that you see, whether it's even the, the Stargate sequence, you know, that's, that's a chemical reaction that you're seeing and you're seeing, you know, like lights played with and whatnot. But now you, I mean, now basically we all have that as a screensaver, you know, the type of thing that looks like the, the star, the Stargate. Uh, was it iTunes? I think that created something that you, you know, would just play those images, those sorts of images, uh, along to music, uh, 10 or 15 years ago. Um, so yeah, you really do need to, uh, think of these things in, in their, context of uh, when they were made so son of kong uh i saw uh i think last year i'd never heard of the film actually and it's it's everybody that was basically involved with the original king kong came back to do it in the same year um they had spent so much money in making the film that basically they just broke even when king kong came out so they were like forced to do this sequel, Son of Kong, so they could get some money in their pocket. And they made it a little bit cheaper. Um, they still had all the sets and had all the co- had whatever it was that you need to make. Just like, you know, when you do Deathly Howls or you do other films where you do two, like, like you almost, you've already got everything there. Right. So you've already saved that. Now, if you wait, five years then you may have to rebuild everything and and what have you yeah and it amazes me that they made these two films in the same year with that amount of stop uh motion animation you know because that takes a hell of a lot of time um well, it's like it's disney a- and their animation like like the stop is like harryhausen and the stuff we will get to the harryhausen stuff um soon but with with that that takes a long time. Now, now, it takes longer to do all the stuff that they did with Disney, where they had whole teams of people drawing on every cell, and you had 24 cells per second. Like, to actually do a proper Disney film in the classic era where they were doing Sleeping Beauty and Snow White and stuff, that took years. The Harryhausen yeah. stuff, you're right, that would take three months or six months or maybe a year, however long it takes. That's taking one frame at a time, then moving a, a, an arm slightly and doing this, another one. And after 24, though, well, you have now one second of screen time. Right. And that, that can you imagine do, the, the patience to be it's, able to do that? It's incredible. And again, that, that it all worked out so well. Hmm. Um, so we jump ahead to 1949 with Mighty Joe Young. Um, it's a film that has a lot of charm, very much like um, Son of Kong. Uh, it's it's um, a little gentler, um, say, than Kong. Um, and that's, the f- as far as I know, the first time we get uh, Ray Harryhausen working on uh, stop-motion animation. Here's the kind of movie you're waiting to see as John Ford and Miriam C. Cooper present Mighty Joe Young whose sensational exploits will startle you, thrill you, electrify you with hair-raising excitement and suspense. See mighty Joe Young as he savagely resists capture in his native Africa. Oh! Joe! Joe! 
See the most fantastic relationship between beast and beauty. A mere girl mastering a primitive giant. See mighty Joe Young, enraged by Hollywood pranksters, destroy Filmland's swankiest nightclub on a fabulous Sunset Strip. Mighty Joe Young, the picture that's alive with the most sensational action thrills ever filmed. Mightier than King Kong, Mighty Joe Young. And that's really the that's the era that we're looking at and that leads into um, what I would call the, uh, the atomic age. Uh, and just like Marvel, all of their characters in their early books, um, basically they're like mutations from atomic experiments or atomic explosions. Um, we, we get that tenfold in, in cinema. And these are like, you know, Definitely, for the most part, B movies, uh, with a with few exceptions. Um, so I have on my list uh, the Beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms, uh, which was based on Ray Bradbury's The Foghorn short story, um, and you know, essentially, it's a uh, a dinosaur wreaking havoc on a city, which is sort of <laughs> the, the main trope, I guess, of, of this genre, right, David? Impossible, unbelievable, fantastic. But I tell you, it could happen. It could happen. It could happen. It could happen. Yes, it could happen. For various authorities believe that buried somewhere under the polar ice cap, in a state of suspended animation are the awesome creatures, the leviathans that roamed the earth at the dawn of time. And under certain conditions, a nuclear explosion could free one from his icy tomb. Then, guided by instinct, the beast would come back, back to the caverns of the deepest Atlantic where it was spawned. An armored giant wreaking his prehistoric fury on modern man and his puny machines. Cities would be terrorized by the cruel intruder from the past. Populations crazed and panicked with fear by its destructive force. Granite and steel would crumble. Soldiers and their weapons would be powerless before the onslaught of the beast. The beast. The beast. The beast from 20,000 fathoms. Herald Square, 34th Street. Broadway. Every section of the city is guarded. No one knows where the monster will strike next. Yeah, so that's that's 1953. And then, you know, it just explodes. There's so many of them. We get uh, them from 1954, and that's giant ants. Uh, and that uh, is with James Arness, who uh, we know from Gunsmoke, but also from one of our favorite films, The the Thing, or what the original film is called, what? The Thing? Yeah, The Thing from Another World. Yeah, yeah. Around 54... Um... Howard Hawks, or I'm trying to remember. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. He produced director. it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then uh, we go on to just here's just a few of the others that follow. We get Tarantula, which clearly a giant tarantula. The Deadly Mantis, also a giveaway from 1987. Yeah, and, uh-huh. yeah, and, and a quick note on the Deadly Mantis. It was originally going to be called the Not So Deadly Grasshopper, but 
the, the studio <laughs> said, no, we can't get behind that. But yeah. Like, okay. Part the some, somewhat threatening. The somewhat, somewat threatening. threatening. Mantis. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't like the look in his eye, Mantis. <laughs> um, uh, so, yeah, then we get the attack film. So we have, like, Attack of the Crab Monsters in 57, Attack of the Giant Leeches. I mean, leeches are bad enough. You know, that, that scene in Stand By Me still gives me the willies. And actually, I'm sorry to have said willies in context with that scene, but it does give me the willies. Um, Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, which uh, was remade in 1993 with Daryl Hannah, and then a, another cheesier version attack of the 50 foot cheerleader came and that's true of almost all of these films from the atomic era dave where uh either there was a spin-off a sequel something you know once once one of them was out you had to do uh multiples um there was one thing i wanted to call up somewhere in here because i have that there's this poem one of my favorite genre poems um, and it was called Attack of the Crab Monsters. And I obviously will not read it because that might, there might be an issue with copyright or what have you. But it's by Lawrence Rab. Uh, Lawrence is L-A-W-R-E-N-C-E and Rab is R-A-A-B. If anyone has a chance, if you can somehow find it online, I think it might be available somewhere online but it's actually this wonderful poem about that about that movie and about the idea of the of you know the scientists and what's going on and this is a backdrop and it's just such a powerful beautiful um a poem which would be probably perfect after watching the film but it stands up on its own but i certainly recommend the poem attack of the Crab Monsters by Lawrence Rapp. I will look for that for sure. Um, so in, in prepping for this show, David, I watched uh, a number of things, a lot of them on Tubi. So, yeah, always some great uh, B-movies uh, to be found on Tubi. I came across this one called The Giant Claw um, from, I don't have the date written down, but again, it's going to be the late 50s. Uh, and it's so awful. It is uh, about a giant bird. It has a real Ed Wood feel to it. Um, I would recommend it just for how hilarious it is. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I'm not recommending it like I would recommend Kong, Son of Kong, Mighty Joe Young, any of that. It's just this ugly, freaking bird. That bird is extraterrestrial. It comes from outer space, from some godforsaken antimatter galaxy millions and millions of light years from the earth atomic hydrogen weapons capable of wiping cities countries off the face of the earth are completely ineffective against this creature from the skies in the 70s there was a comedian um, who had an emu. Do you remember this? No. Oh, okay. Well, I think he was like British or Australian or something, but he always had this emu puppet. And the the animal in the giant claw just totally reminded me of this really awful emu. Um, and uh, anyway. it says Rod Hull, R-O-D, and then Hull, H-U-L-L. 
Yeah. Was oh, I remember him now. Yes, and he was on um, Johnny Carson, the, the the Late Show. But yes, absolutely, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Is he moved all the dangerous at all? I mean. You've just, you've just upset him. I said it again. <laughs> no, no, he's not. He's very nice right. once you get to know him. Right. In fact, you can stroke him like that. He's very nice. Man? Yes. <laughs> so that's what this bird <laughs> reminds me of. Oh, and it's not. That's the thing about it. This, this bird is not stop motion. It's either like a marionette or an actual puppet. So it just looks awful. Um, but that sounds like a mystery science theater or whatever it is, yeah. 2000 kind of, like, like you would just watch it to just poke fun at or, or say, some of those shows can be very funny where you've just got the perfect witty moment or whatever that just makes you just cry laughing. Oh, yeah, and you get to just riff on it. Now mm. that you, you mentioned Mystery Science Theater 3000 or MST3K, um, I had a look at all of their... Um, titles, everything that they have done, and they've done a ton of them. There's been a number of seasons over the years. So I'm just going to quickly read how many of these films or which films uh, were giant monster films that ended up on Mystery Science 3000. First of all, they had five Gamera films, which we're going to get into in a moment when we cover Toho and the whole kaiju universe but there was a film called these are the in the order that they appeared so they might jump around chronologically here so there was five gamma films uh that they they had phase four which was about giant ants came out in 1974 was on the show the black scorpion from 1957 earth versus the spider from 1958 war of the colossal beast from 1958 uh, the Giant Gila Monster from 1959, Attack of the Giant Leeches, which we've already touched on, The Killer Shrews, Ega, about a giant caveman starring Richard Keel, which we'll, <laughs> we'll talk about him in a little bit, came out in 1962, oh. Village of the Giants, which I desperately want to see, came out in 1965. It's about giant teenagers. This is just the beginning of the wildest, weirdest adventure you've ever seen. And this is where the fun really began. I wonder if this makes everything grow. Sheriff, we are going to take over this town. Now, first of all, there's going to be a nine o'clock curfew for all adults. It's wild. It's way out. It's Village of the Giants. Uh, the Deadly Mantis from 1956, The Giant Spider Invasion, Gorgo from 1961, which is a total Godzilla ripoff, Horror of Spider Island, Reptilicus from 1961, The Land That Time Forgot from 1974, and from this century, this millennium, I guess, they included... Atlantic Rim. Now, don't confuse it oh. with Pacific Rim because this is just a ripoff of Pacific Rim. I watched Atlantic Rim. Oh, and no. And I'm glad to say I don't remember much of it other than as I was watching it, I realized just how awful this thing is. Yeah. yeah. I, am, I, I think I will have a look at it. See, I, I remember hearing about how bad it was and I hadn't seen Pacific Rim yet. So I was thinking, oh, wow. 
Del Toro did a really bad film, really. And, um, you know, but I'm straight on that now. And I actually saw Pacific Rim this week. Um, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But I guess, you know, you were asking, David, about first exposure. Mm. Um, what was yours? What was your first sort of uh, memory of this For, type for large of thing? creatures. Yeah, for this kind of thing that we're talking about, the whole size matters kind of thing. Other than, you know, like certain episodes or things like the one of the, the, the most famous episodes from Lost in Space when the robot becomes large and the people have to crawl inside it to repair something. But the moment they repair it, it starts to shrink and they have to get out before they're crushed inside. You know, that kind of thing. But And, yeah. of course, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea with the various, and sometimes there'd be this giant octopus or some sort of a large man-like thing, whatever it is. They would run into something that's large. Um, but for me, it would have been some of the Godzilla kind of films in the early 70s and repeat um, with, I mean, it's just, and especially when you see some of these photos of behind the scenes where you see the actor who walked, I can't remember his name offhand, but he, he was the one that, that often wore the, the, the Godzilla costume and would, and these sets that they made representing Tokyo where he would just walk around crush. Can you imagine being in that Godzilla outfit and walking around a model of Tokyo and crushing it. It would just be fantastic. Yeah. It's sort of like every child's dream. Um, I will say that I have, um, I worked with a company uh, for a summer or two that designed mascots. Um, Mm. And so I would, often test the heads of the mascots and you put these things on and they are so hot just, Mm. just because it's your own body heat reflecting back at you. Yeah. Um, Most of these things have a little fan built into the top of them that pushes the air out. No kidding. Um, But I can't imagine being in the Godzilla suit under studio lights for very long. Like I think, you know, you would lose a lot of weight after a day of shooting in, in those conditions. Well, um, any photo of him, basically, with the, the, th- the head off. So he's got the, the, the leg, the, the bottom half is Godzilla. And he's oh, there with, with a with nice. this um, suspension, like, like the Larry King suspender things are sort of holding up the <laughs> bottom part of the, the thing. And, he is, oh, and he's got a T-shirt, and he's sweating profusely kind of thing. Yeah, well, it's... Yeah. I have to tell you, David, when you first started to tell that little bit about, you know, the guy walking around in the suit, the whatever eight-year-old in me was like, what? It's not Godzilla? And then it was like, oh, no, no, of course it's not. Right, right. You shut up. Just shut up, you. Um, Can so you I guess- imagine being a kid at that time when your parents finally have to tell you there is no Godzilla? Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Well, I do remember, you know, at at some point, but I I was still pretty young, but like, oh my God, Tokyo again, you know, (laughs) and the number of times they've had to rebuild Tokyo. Yeah. And feeling so bad for the people who lived in Tokyo. Well, the running and screaming people, all these wonderful, perfect, the, the, the whole things with the effect, like, 
I don't know if it was the first film or, or where along where Godzilla, his whole back would light up and the, the, the oh, various yes. ribs things. And then he would breathe this fire. Like, I don't know where this fire comes from other than, I guess, the atomic thing. And this is a whole thing where, you know, you shouldn't be messing around with atomic uh, bombs and such because, you know, and then we've got, of course, all the things with mutants. And I think we're going to have to do a podcast just on mutants, you know, things like the hills have eyes and, and, mm. and, and home from um, X-Files and various other things. And the idea of the mutant and of course, in ba- battle beneath the planet of the apes, and all that kind of stuff where you've got the idea of the mutant. Um, but that's what it is. A lot of this is coming from the fact that there was some kind of an atomic uh, explosion or something. Even the ants. A lot of these films, like even those giant ants, I think, was related to oh, yeah. maybe some atomic testing. I mean, and you can absolutely see why, if you were Japanese, how you would feel this storyline in a very real way. Mm. Um uh, you know, I was just thinking, so yeah, Godzilla would have been one of my earliest. Um, and now it's not quite the same, but some of the Bigfoot stuff uh, I might mention um, as being there and being sort of formative. Um, there was a film that I went to see uh, in the theater. I believe it was 1972. I'm just looking for my note on it. Yeah, it was just called... Don't the Le- say The Legend of Bogey Creek. No. What the hell? <laughs> Were you going to say that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was. Thank I was, you. I was taking this. I, I have. I could show it to you if you like. No, I was. <laughs> my, there were times when you know my parents would want to see a film, and it's like, well, we're bringing Troy because we can't get a babysitter or whatever. I think that's what it was, or they thought it wouldn't phase me, even mm-hmm. though I would have been eight, I guess. No, and I was ten when I watched that, it in '72. Yeah. yeah, and I saw it too, and. Yeah, it stays with you. That film stays with you. Yeah, yeah. It, it, so for folks who don't know, it's a 1972 uh, docudrama horror about the folk monster, F-O-U-K-E. Um, and it's a, a Bigfoot-type creature. Amazingly, it was the 11th highest grossing film of 1972. Um, and it really, you know, it's not a found footage film. But because it's a, a docudrama, uh, it allows them to get away with a lot of the low-budget stuff that they're doing because you, it just feels like it's real, especially yeah. if you're 8 or 10 or whatever, you know, in yeah. 1972. Um, but uh, well, it had a real sense to it. It had this feeling of foreboding and you, you're, you're there and it's got this atmosphere that, was captured so brilliant. Maybe it may not hold up as well if I were to watch it this year, but um, at the time it just was, you know, that, that sense of foreboding and the atmosphere that I also felt from the Swamp Thing film, you know, that, that sense of the, the um, surrounding and the outside is a character itself almost. Right. And, you know, this is what, I guess a year before Jaws, and and they always say about uh, Jaws, or maybe it was the tagline, like, don't go in the water. Well, well, for me, with Bogey Creek, there's a scene where a guy is on the toilet. Do you remember this scene? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. He's in a toilet, on a toilet, in like this sort of little shed, or maybe it is an outhouse, but I think it's in the house itself. And, uh, and the thing, the creature, uh, 
breaks through the wall as the guy is on the dumper. And so as much as Jaws had me not wanting to go in the water, I was afraid to go into the bathroom for a brief period uh, because of this film. So, yeah. yeah. Well, the film also gave that moment where it's near the end of the film and they're all sort of at the beach or wherever they're or at the lakefront or whatever. And one of the guys said, oh, I'm just going to head back to the, the house or back to the cottage, whatever it is. And yeah, so that sort of sets up the whole tradition of the person heading back and maybe it's not the best right. thing to do. Yep. Here in this primitive river bottom wilderness in southern Arkansas, along with deer, duck, crane, and beaver, lurks a creature that walks upright. Whether it is a man, a monster, or a myth, No one really knows. What we do know is the people around Falk, Arkansas, say they have seen such a creature nearly 250 times since 1954. And that this creature, whatever it is, emits one of the most terrifying sounds ever recorded. Also, the, the whole thing with Godzilla and, and all of these ones, like, I don't know where they came up with all these things. You had a moth, you had a giant turtle that could fly, I guess. Yeah. A three-headed monster. Yeah. It, it was, I mean, just what they can come up with. What took me away was that when they start going mechanical and they started having, I know that I think you like those ones, but I was never, I, I, I preferred the non-mechanical. Ones. I think this was the slight difference in our age. I think that's all that was. I think, uh, yeah, you were probably a little bit too mature for it when that happened. <laughs> and then, and then I, I wasn't, <laughs> uh, to me, it was like, uh, I had no sense yet of things like product placement or whatever, or tie in, um, merchandise tie in. But, uh, I was a sucker for Mechagodzilla. Mm. Uh, I just thought it was the, the neatest idea. Because I, I can't think of anything prior to that where uh, there's like a mechanical version of something. Like, I don't think there was ever like a mechanical version of Frankenstein to beat Frankenstein. Um, but I think that could, that like, that's kind of a cool concept in itself. But um, um yeah, and I, I don't was actually, know if it's on your list, but there was Son of God. I remember a film. I thought it was Son of Godzilla. Yes, yes. but but there was this one because I loved it because how cute the son. Like there was this scene. The only thing I remember from the entire film is just a scene of the little baby Godzilla. Yeah, it's actually so cute jumping over the tail. Like 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 Godzilla is moving his tail. And the little baby's jumping over it or something? Or am I just making this up? No, I have a little note here in it. Because the actual name is uh, Minera. Uh, Minera first appeared in Toho's 1967 film, Son of Godzilla. Um, I have a note that it is the adopted son of Godzilla and is sometimes referred or referenced as Minya in the American dubbed versions. Now, 
Um, I did not know that the son of Godzilla was adopted. Um, and you just have to wonder what the paperwork is like for that kind of adoption, David. I mean, there's got to be a lot of bureaucratic uh, hoops to jump through, I would think. The lawyer yeah. fees themselves would be just crazy. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yes, that would have been right up there for me, too. Like, once they sort of do, did these, like, I guess that you would think, like, spin-off monsters. Yeah, how do you not love Son of Godzilla? The mightiest monster the world has ever known. The mightiest egg the world has ever known. Introducing the Son of Godzilla. The fantastic red water. One of the many weird natural phenomena on mysterious Solgel Island. Son of Godzilla. A rollicking monster spectacular. monster becomes a monstrous monster. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. I like Rodan. I guess it was like a pteranodon. Ter- um, and Mothra, I don't, I would have to watch the film again because I can't imagine a giant moth as being somehow dangerous, but I thought that it, it um, I would just have to see it again to understand the, the mythology or, or what it's about. Right uh, now, there was a cult of people that were worshiping or were helping it out or or doing something. There was these women I remember that were yes. somehow attending the, to Mothra like the two the two twins, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's it. And, and I think they spoke in unison. And yes, they, yes. They sat on uh, Mothra's head or yes. on his back. Um, yes. Now I don't know if that's the first Mothra film was 1961. I don't know if they're in that one or not. I, I have a feeling they're not. But yeah, there were 36 films featuring Godzilla in the Toho universe, which is a studio in in uh, Japan. And um, a lot of the, the uh, credit can go to uh, Ishiro Honda, um, and he did just a lot of Godzilla films for Toho. Um, and, uh, thank God he did. Cause we all, uh, think of Godzilla fondly from our childhood, but it wasn't just the, uh, the Kaiju as they're called, which is means strange beasts. Um, it was not just the, the Kaiju, um, that Toho did. They, they have a film that is, I find one of the weirdest, uh, crossovers in film history and that's frankenstein conquers the world where frankenstein we get a giant frankenstein so a godzilla sized frankenstein um who becomes a good guy i think he fights in the service of japan against another monster holy frankenstein then we get into the 70s and sure we did get jaws which i mean you might think you know you can make an argument for not being in our list because it was you know a shark but it was a a massive shark Mm. um in fact i remember uh, i went to see that in the theater too with my parents and my dad who was in the navy for 21 years he was like oh that it's too big to be like swimming in three foot of water off the beach you know i remember him being like rolling his eyes at that one it's like it would be beached if it was in that far um but, well, that um, size of a because they were mentioning in the film about how most attacks happen within three feet of water within, but those sharks are not thirty foot, 
25 or 30 foot long um, uh, shark. <gasps> so big. We're in the middle of this episode and we're just can't fit it all in this one episode. So I think we're going to, I mean, it's just too big to fit. It's the, uh, the supersized version. Yeah, it looks like we went a bit over time, and we're, we've got so much more to talk about that we are going to have to come back. So much more. Five. Oh, so yeah, yeah, much yeah. more. Yeah, 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 yeah. It just gets bigger and better. Yeah. So, um, and even girthier, be a second part. as you said. Girthier, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Lord, I remember when, I don't know who came up with the pun, maybe it was my brother-in-law, but there was Lord Garth of Iser, which was <laughs> from an original Trek episode where he was actually Captain Garth and he was in that penal colony. He was insane and he had taken it over. Penal colony? You can't say to, that. Well, you can now. Okay. But, or maybe you can't. I think I may be canceled soon. And I, okay. They may have to lock me up. And he was in that but, colony. But they were referring, in some kids you could refer to him as Lord Girth of Isor, but um, that was <laughs> that pun there. So no pun unsaid. And we do have our Beatles reference, at least in one of these two episodes, we did throw in a bit of a Beatles reference. Yep. Yep. Oh, and again, it's, it's so big that like, I've just realized there's one thing I was going to mention in the mo- the monkeys movie head. There's a giant version of Victor mature, like a king size version of Victor mature in the monkeys movie head. Okay. There, I feel better now. It's out there. Yeah. And we did do the miniature thing episode or the shrinkage one, but you can reverse that too. The idea of fighting a large spider off with a pencil. Well, you have been shrunk, but that spider's large now. And so there's all that aspect too. But anyways, this was our episode four of season three and we're truncating it now. And there will be more in episode five where we continue to talk about this. Come back to the cottage. Join us here on Lake Dalek. Absolutely. Check it out. And thanks a lot, everyone. big.